Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Hello, I'm James Scotland, and this is Supply Circles. In this podcast, I delve into all aspects of the modern day supply chains to find answers to the question of how we build resilient, sustainable supply chains in Australia today, whilst we face the challenges of rapid digitalization, decarbonization by 2050, and ongoing disruptions. In our last episode, I interviewed Angeline, and I just want to thank everyone for the great feedback. Angeline from Simplot was a wonderful conversation, and the feedback's been fantastic. If you want to give feedback to this episode or even to previous episodes, hit me up at james.scotland1t at aigroup.com.au. Uh, or uh, drop a note into my LinkedIn page or the AI Group website. Uh, the, the interviews have been wonderful and the feedback's been great, so thank you very much for your support. Today is going to be even better than before, the best one ever. It's going to be fantastic, <laughs> building our guest up to a big deal. Uh, our, the guest is Ian Rogers, Director of Trade and Supply Chain Finance at the Westpac Institutional Bank. Ian's a very busy man. He's just come back from a lightning fast trip around the globe to uh, investigate supply chain financing around the world. And it's wonderful that he's been able to take his time uh, to give us some time today. Uh, I was recently in Adelaide at a conference, uh, a supply chain conference where Ian and I both spoke. And Ian spoke on finance supply chains. The supply chain has many streams running through your business, and the finance supply chain is an important one. So I'm really keen for him to tell you what I heard at that conference, but then also maybe dive a bit deeper into it. So welcome, Ian. Good to have you on the show. Thanks, James. It's great to be able to be here. And it was good down in Adelaide, uh, speaking to all the companies that down there during that, during that conference with AOG. It was brilliant. Hello, everyone that uh, has joined us since then. Um, it's always good to go to Adelaide. It's one of the gems of Australia. Hey, um, we're going to talk about um, financial supply chains, but this is our last episode of the year. Supply Circles is taking a break in, for a month until till mid-January. Uh, and so um, uh, I should, first off, wish you Merry Christmas. But I wanted to ask you a question. <laughs> I wanted to ask you the big, big question of the day. Santa is about to start his massive supply chain uh, um, process that he delivers every year, a parcel to every every house in the world. But I'm told that it's made easier because he skips all the bankers' house because the bankers are not, have not been nice. They've been, they've been naughty. Is that true? That can't be true. No, it's not true. I mean, <laughs> a number of us in the background, probably, there was a lot of companies in there probably running around saying, oh, bankers are not good in any way, shape or form. But, you know, in essence, uh, we're there to try and assist companies. So nearly everything that we do, we're trying to be getting to, if you like, Santa's good books, being able to support the companies and that as they move forward in many ways. Yeah, I was being facetious. I spent six years uh, as uh, a... <laughs> As uh, in strategy and uh, and sales and marketing uh, at a, um, a reasonable size finance and and um, insurance institute uh, institution and uh, and I often got told you know bankers are terrible and I thought I don't I don't I don't, I don't know where they come from uh, you know much better than much it probably comes around because most bankers the bankers are the first ones that will say no to uh, looking at business um, and and being able to support companies but. Uh, Providing it's done in the right way, then, you know, as I said, we would be the good guys because we'd be protecting people, 
and too many companies fall over because they haven't looked at what's happening in the background. Yeah. Uh, my next question is going to be how has banking changed over the years? But first off, let's find out about you. How did you, how did you get into banking? What brought you to this place? What's, what's your story? I started when I left school, um, went into the Victorian Police Force for a little while for a couple of years, but found that uh, shift work and that didn't really agree with me, so I left there and ended up uh, working at that back then for Bank of New Zealand, just as a teller, um, but eventually found my way into international trade. Uh, with Bank of New Zealand, um, and then worked my way up uh, through then to joined HSBC in 1985 as one of the first Australians employed by the bank, um, and then worked my way up through there. I spent 32 years with HSBC around the world, um, working in besides Australia and Asia into UK, Europe, and before coming back to Australia in 2016. To work with Westpac, I was the regional head of trade sales in the Middle East, looking after 11 countries over there. All of that time, in um, apart from about 12 to 18 months, in uh, with HSBC and with Westpac has been in international trade and in looking at things like supply chains, risk mitigation, etc. As we move through that, so my whole background is in in essence, I'd. I'd to be honest, I don't like the term trade finance that most banks and they call it. I'm a risk mitigator. I mitigate risk, and that's where we drive things forward from here. Must have been fascinating um, in the Middle East, though. HSBC has got a great reputation in that region. They're, they're a leader, aren't they? Uh, and But also a lot of risk projects. There is. Man. I mean, I think you know, people talk about risk and talk about what's happening. I mean, these was interesting times when I went into the Middle East because, the, you know, I arrived there at the start of 2011. Now, if you can think back to 2011, I think it was uh, late February 2011 that the Arab Spring kicked off. Mm -hmm. um, so it was uh, started off very uh, interesting times in Egypt and, uh, and around the region with the Arab Spring and that going. But that brought a lot of other things to the fore as well. Companies still had to trade. Company Countries still had to import and export goods and keep going. So um, – it was, it was an interesting time and scenario to be able to do that. I mean, one of the things I did learn very quickly in the Middle East is there have been uh, disputes and that and family disputes essentially around the region for 3,000 years and there will be for the next 3,000 years. So essentially a lot of what was going on was just family squabbles. Um, but a lot of people from outside don't understand that. Yeah, they don't understand family, I, I think. Um, my understanding of being of doing business particularly through Asia we don't understand family in the same context as what uh, family and business is. In, in many of these places, they don't have as strong a laws as we do. So rather than automatically falling back onto the law to resolve a dispute, it has to be done through the family structure and through relationships. So it's going to be tough to be a banker. It is, but again, it's understanding those relationships and where everything fits. I think, but from a um trading perspective or importing exporting perspective supply chain perspective it's falling back on the uh, falling back on all of the necessary tools and that that are used globally traditional letters of credit and traditional ways of doing business are very much to the fore in the middle east because that is they're governed by universal rules that all banks and that comply with and gives companies some security to uh, understand when they're going to get paid or when they're going to get their goods yeah, I think it's a great lesson and, and, and nice of you to mention it, that if you're going to do international trade, you need to understand what is the currency that is accepted in the, in the, in the country in the, in, with the people that you're dealing with. There's, there's things that we assume, but then 
there's there's global global structures that that um, other countries rely on. I think one of the one of the areas in that, that I've learned over many years is um, there there are risks in everything that you do, and it's a matter of companies sitting down with companies. And one of my jobs is sitting down with clients and working through their trade cycles and what the risks are in their trade cycles, and that incorporates many different things, incorporating um, buyer risk and supplier risk, currency, foreign exchange, government rules and regulations, sanctions, countries that are going that are at war, what are the neighbouring areas and that doing, what are the shipping routes, what are the shipping times, can you get containers? All those sort of things come to the fore, and that's what we do as um, – when I talk about supply chains, that's where we sit in the in the program is to be able to look at what those risks are, speak with the companies, and then try and mitigate those risks so that they can be ensured that they're going to receive, as I said, the money or the the money or the goods when and if they complete the transactions. Yeah, I want to get back into that. That's that's, that's fascinating. I want to dive into that risk issue, and from my point of view, from my time in in banking and in business. You know, the purpose of a bank is to rate for risk. If I can make it um, a better risk for you, I should be able to get a better rate of funds. Uh, but mm. if I'm, <laughs> I'm coming to you with a with a high risk uh, proposal, I can expect it. I, I can expect it to hurt. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think a lot of that goes down to um, a lot of the companies, the larger companies, and all that, and the smaller you know, down all the way down to smaller companies need to understand what their supply chains are and who the parties are in their supply chain. One of the issues and that, that I did see over many years is the large multinationals, the likes of the BHPs and the Rios and the large exporters and that of the world, they continued through good times and bad times to utilise things like letters of credit and all that sort of thing and to mitigate their risk because at board level they say we're not willing to take on X risk, Y risk, whatever, and this is the way we trade. Smaller companies don't take or don't listen or take that um those advices and that into into thing, and then they actually take bring those risks into the business. And when something falls over, um, they're left holding the bag. Let's get back to that. Going back to your career, how mm-hmm. has banking changed over the years? Um, because you know, I facetiously started by saying banks were the bad guys. You have to put your best mm-hmm. suit on and go and go cap in hand to the bank and say, "Please give me, you know, some money so I can start my business." Um, and and then you didn't hear from them again. I gather. Back in the old days, it's different now, isn't it? It's a it's a relationship, and there's a much greater understanding of business by by bankers. Is is that fair, or my? No, I'd say that's that's fully fair. I mean, part of what we have to do now is understand the businesses and that that we're supporting and doing and working with. I mean, I think over time, I think at various at various stages in the in the twenty in the thirty years and that I've been doing it, or just over. Um, yeah, there's been times where banks would dictate exactly what had to be done and what they would do and all that sort of stuff. That's not the case anymore. I think it's the case of the bankers and people like myself and that getting to understand what the companies require, being flexible in how that is used and then um, putting the solutions in place that fit everybody. I mean, when I say I'm a risk mitigator, I sit down and identify risks throughout the transaction from not only the company's perspective but also the bank's perspective. And then try and mitigate all those risks around to come up with a solution that meets everybody's requirements. So it's not just a simple um, one one thing fits all. One of the challenges for Australian banks is that it's a small market. It's like twenty three mm-hmm. million people. 
uh, 12 or 13,000 employed people, even less businesses. Uh, when it's concentrated like that, that's smaller than Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's um, 27 million people inside the M25 in London. So, uh, you know, there's more people inside the M25 than there is in the whole of Australia. So it's hard. And, and if you're going to be the bank to that, that small co- uh, country, that comes with a risk in itself. Does that change your risk profile? Um, not really because it comes down to who's buying, who's selling. I mean, you've got some large buyers and that in Australia. Um, you know, we'll probably touch on the Commonwealth Government, et cetera, in, in national security, et cetera. They're, they're a large buyer. And then in the marketplace, large sellers like BHP um, and the coal mines and all that sort of stuff and that going around, that's Dealing in as, as iron ore guys sell a bit too, don't they? Yeah, the iron ore guys sell a bit, but I think yeah, ultimately you're dealing, you're looking at what the, what are the goods, where are they going to, and how are they doing? So some of the biggest markets in the world are China, India, etc., and we're dealing with those. So mm. you look at this as a global business, and you know the opportunities are huge. I think one of the other things in that to recognise is that. We may only have 23 people in 23 million people or 24 million people in Australia, but we are dealing in an international marketplace. If you went down and, and you're a local Australian company sitting in George Street in Sydney, if you looked across the road, you're probably competing against a multinational company from the UK or Europe or Asia or something like that. So we we are competing in a multinational, international marketplace and if we can compete and be successful in this marketplace and you can compete and be successful anywhere in the world and i think australian companies should take that opportunity and look to other places in the world as well but do it in a uh, take into account all the risks and mitigate them as much as possible well that leads into this idea about the financial supply chain during uh, COVID, um for example some unexpected risks or yeah unexpected risks popped up uh for 20 years before that, me and others were going for the, you know, as lean as possible supply chain, minimal inventory, mm-hmm. uh, just in time uh, for an island that's about 5,000 kilometres away from a decent market uh, and mm-hmm. reliant on shipping containers. And then all of a sudden we couldn't get ships in or out. That and a whole bunch of other risks, lack of staff, all, all sorts of things kicked in. Uh, tell us about the financial supply chain and how you see risk. What, what does it all mean? What are you talking about? What does it all mean? I mean, when I look at – I listen to a lot of people talk about supply chains and in, inevitably they're talking about the logistical supply chains and that's where they all sit. Um, but overriding over the top of that, I think there's a financial supply chain that sits over it. I mean, ultimately you've got um, a, an initial – supplier and initial buyer and they have contracts they want to buy and sell between one another but then those goods are coming from overseas etc i mean one of the issues in that that started that started COVID, um a lot of the asian suppliers all of a sudden turned around and weren't trusting companies in in each of the countries so all of a sudden it was you want those goods and you pay us up front and cash was flying out the door for a lot of companies and you know they couldn't get their goods unless they uh, pay for them in full and we're sort of going, well, hold on a second. That's not what I would call a good risk management uh, scenario. And it was interesting back then. I mean, we'd had, apart from the GFC in 2008, it's essentially been a nice, pleasant 
global environment for, for many, many years where companies are happy to deal on open account and take risks and all that sort of stuff. But the minute COVID hit, a lot of the suppliers in that generation said, no, money up front. And we then had to reintroduce things like letters of credit and that to companies to say, well, you don't have to deposit that money up front. You're losing total control of your cash and, and total control over the process. If you want to import goods, then suggest that you use a letter of credit. It gives the supply, the supplier a guaranteed payment, providing he meets all the terms and conditions and that, that are in that letter of credit. Um, and it also then gives the importer um, peace of mind that he's going to get his goods on time and be delivered into the country. You know, we're coming up to Christmas. There's no, it's no use ordering Christmas trees and getting them delivered on the 28th of January. Um, you have used that yeah. one before, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, you, 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 don't, you haven't got a market, have you? <laughs> so, um, well, how does a letter of credit work? You take the risk. Is that the story? Well, letter of credit is just a, it's effectively a guarantee by the issuing bank that providing all the terms and conditions in that, in that letter of credit are met, the bank guarantees payment, whether the importer's got the funds or not. So if Westpac issues a letter of credit, the documentation that's presented is 100% correct, then we guarantee that pa- the payment will be made or we make will make the payment. Only then do we go to our applicant after we've made the payment to the to the exporter. Right, right. And so they're now becoming uh, much more common, did you say earlier? I think, I mean, they went away for many years. I mean, I think letter of credit's been around for many, many years. Um and it did die off when, when the world was in a nice, peaceful position and everybody's quite happy to take risk on open account basis and all that sort of stuff and give terms. Letters of credit was dying and everybody was saying trade is a dying industry. But I think what we have seen more recently with COVID and then with the issues in uh, the Ukraine and Russia, that there is always risk. There is always something that will pop up and that's going to cause problems. And people need to understand that yeah, we need to mitigate that risk. We need to ensure that we're going to get paid or if um, we're going to get our goods. And if we don't get them, then what do we have in place to be able to in, uh, ensure we don't lose our money or ensure we you know, we get we don't get, as I said, the Christmas trees in January? Um, and there's various ways. Letters of credit is just one way of doing it, but that's the traditional way of doing it and, you know, it probably brings me more into everybody starts talking about digitalisation and all that sort of stuff at this stage and going, oh, but we can do that with electronic documents and all that sort of stuff. Well, actually, no, you can't. So um, it is very much a uh, a risk mitigation perspective and, and ensuring that, you know, you get your goods or you get your money. Yeah, I think if uh, if we learned anything during COVID, uh, it was the supply chain was about managing the risk. Uh, and, yeah. I, and I appreciate you, you sort of saying, well, one of the ways in which you can clarify what the risk is is by looking at it from the financial point of view, from the from your financials. I think understanding, I mean, we, we had the conversation down in Adelaide. I mean, if you've got um, your logistical supply chain where – all of a sudden your shipment times, and we know from Europe, have blown out by 150 days or more, then, you know, that also then hits your financial supply chain because all of a sudden you've still got terms that you have to pay 60 days, 60 days from um, date of invoice or 60 days from shipment or something like that. So you've still got a fixed date on where you've got to pay for the goods. But if those goods aren't hitting Australia for another 90 days or three, you know, or four months, then... You have an issue in that you've got to cover that cash flow period from the time that you've made the payment until the time you get the goods and are able to sell them. 
And in some instances, that can be out to 180 days. And that's a long time for companies to carry that. That's the point, isn't it? If, if, if the goods are uh, uh, at sea for 180 days, someone's carrying 180 days worth of, of, uh, of cash flow. Correct. Um, or of, of tied up, up cash. It's either you, one end of the, one end of the, bar, one end of the bargain or the bank <laughs> is carrying mm. that, you know, they're carrying that. All right, when we come back, let's talk about uh, the disruptions that are coming up uh, and, and see if I can get a risk manager's view of these, um, of these issues. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. Um, when I mentioned before, uh, Ian, that I spent a few years in the in the banking industry, mainly retail banking, and it was at the time when we were uh, trying to convert people from uh, coming into the branches and doing banking on their on their computer and then eventually their phone, and everyone said, "No, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I want to come into the bank, into the branch." But now everyone loves doing it that way. It's hard to change people's uh, attitude. Has there been a lot of change in in business banking uh, in recent times or uh, are we just uh, getting better at understanding how the banks and the businesses work together? It's a little bit of both. I think there's been change. I think the way people interact with the banks now, a lot of it is over digital channels um, in, in transferring data and information and that backwards and forwards. I think, you know, whereas previously they would be going into the bank to lodge application forms and all that sort of stuff, now that's done online. Um, so it makes it a lot quicker and a lot cleaner. They've got access to their data, got access to what's outstanding and that in a much quicker foot, uh, quicker and right there in front of them so they can manage their cash flows, they can manage what they've got in front of them, manage their facilities. So in that aspect, it's been very good um, and it has been a change. You've got more time to work with them as, as people rather than just Correct. trying to get them to look at the numbers here. Yeah, so rather, you know, if they've got the numbers that in front of them, then it's just a matter of – the one thing in that that does come out of it is we can quickly see what we saw in the start of COVID. All of a sudden, companies were starting to bump up to the tops of their limits, etc. And you can suddenly see why. And we can, you know, we can ask the questions: What's happening? Where? Why all of a sudden has your average usage gone from seventy percent to ninety-five percent to ninety-nine percent in your bumping limits? And invariably, at the start of COVID, etc., it was because of the delays in um, shipping times and all that sort of stuff. So. It's got to be there. And, I mean, what's in some of the other changes and that that happened out of that um, was the changes that were necessary in, in facilities and facility structures. Um, you know, companies, as you, you know, one of the comments in that that you made earlier around uh, inventory companies, yeah, companies have to build up their inventory in order to be able to meet what the demands of the marketplace are. So there was a change in many companies' requirements. So rather than working in just-in-time scenarios of bringing things in from overseas. Companies had to build up the stock so they've got the stock in that there to be able to sell. You see it in the automotive industry now. People going in to buy a new car have to wait 18 months now because there's no cars in in, in uh, stock to be able to sell. So many companies have built up their stock levels 
that means they've got a lot more inventory on balance sheet. So it's increasing it's the with, um, silicon chips, but it's, uh, it's and also shipping is uh, is tough. Uh, one of the things we are seeing, and I'm sure you're seeing, uh, increase in warehousing space required, in, increase yeah. in in just the places to hold the inventory. I mean, many years ago, we saw a lot of companies trying to divest of all their inventory and get rid of it and get rid of warehouses and all that sort of stuff. Now it's gone the other way. It's almost it's gone to full 180 degrees and people are back into getting warehouses and, and keeping stock in that now um, well, in place. Yeah, we didn't realise the the uh, risk involved in being that lean. Uh, mm-hmm. you, we, you can't be lean if you live in an island. I think we've discovered just in case rather than just in time. One of the things I wanted to get your your you know, like the banker's view of it as a business person, I'm worried about infl- I, I I think I'm worried about inflation, but it's not really inflation that I'm worried about. Let me just, just paint it the way I see it. Inflation is the the rate of change of the price of an item of a number of items, the rate of change. So if my if for example fuel costs a dollar fifty last quarter and it now costs two dollars, well then the rate of change is is been 25%, inflation is 25%, that's really bad. In the next quarter, if it goes to $2.20, it's gone up uh, 20%, so that's 20% inflation. It's actually gone up 70 cents since last since two quarters ago. The cost of the goods is now way bigger than what the inflation is. If it only goes up 5 cents in the next quarter, they'll say the inflation is under control, but that doesn't help me in terms of the cost of goods. How do I see that from from your eyes? How do I manage my my cost of goods when they are just constantly putting pressure on my margin? Well, I think that's the you know, one is the the margins and that the companies and that need to put on. They need to protect those. Um, but I think invariably it comes down to the contractual obligations and that that the companies enter into. And depends on what the goods in that are as well. I mean, if they're a commodity, then you're going to be based on what the market commodity prices are at the time of sale or purchase. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a fixed good, like shoes or clothing or something along those lines, it may be the price and that can be fixed at the time of the contract. So, uh, so you're, it you're does saying, come down to contracts. Yeah, yeah look at look at the, the contractual arrangement and and manage the contractual arrangement rather than just the the the, yeah. the cogs. I mean, if you look, if you look at, I mean, there's a number of methods. I mean, if you look at some straight out traders, they work with the phone in each year. They're agreeing a price on the phone on one side with what they're purchasing, and then two seconds later, they're selling it with a margin of ten percent or whatever in on the other side. So they've got their margins and that locked in. And I think it's, and this is one of the other uh, areas in that that I think is vitally important from companies, yeah, you know, particularly the smaller companies in. If they're importing from overseas, 85% of world trades in US dollars. So they need to be able to make sure that they have covered, if they're buying in US dollars, that they've taken out forward exchange rates or at least covered the uh, exchange rate risk. I mean, they're not, um, you know, they're not trade uh, dealers in a foreign exchange market. They make money on what they're doing. So lock in the profits and keep it in place. Don't play the risk, the, the ratings game. We've seen the US dollar go from, 72 down to 60 back up to 68 or 69 you know it varies dramatically and if all of a sudden you've got a if you're working on five percent margins or ten percent margins then you know, if it drops from 70 to 60 you've just lost your lost your profit margin if you haven't got the rate booked in so again it's looking it's back it's looking at what all those risks are and how do you mitigate those risks and protect your profit margins from start to finish right right 
yeah, it's, it's a much deeper look at, at your business rather than just um, uh, the flow of goods, isn't it? You know, we're, we're looking a lot at the, the logistics issue. You're suggesting no, 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 no. There's a big area to look at as well. Now you've got to look at the financial side of it as well. Another a big disruption that's coming is is the transition to net zero, and we're going to have to change our businesses around. This is going to be expensive, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure about expensive, but there is. I mean, you've got decarbonisation, you've got ESG. I mean, I was over in when I was in um, Europe. I went to Cybos, which is a large convention for all the globe, all the banks around the world. And I had about fifty meetings in four days there. The first com- the first conversation that came up with every single bank was, "What are you doing in ESG? What are you doing in your relation to your environmental requirements? What are you doing in relation to your social requirements? Um, and what are you demanding from the companies and that who who bank with you?" And you know, I think it's vital that all companies take on board that. If they're not doing it now, then it is coming. Particularly in the institutional space, banks are already asking. Uh, the larger companies and that give us your human rights policies. We want to have a look at them. What have you got from a slavery policy? Um, and if they haven't got them, then the banks are not willing to bank them. So it becomes very important. Now, what's happening as we move forward is that through the supply chains, these larger companies are being made or forced to ensure that their supply chain is also meeting all those requirements around decarbonisation, around um, human rights and, and slavery and all that sort of stuff. If you're importing goods from Bangladesh, who are you importing them from? Have they got um, the right policies and that in place? So as well as the banks asking their institutional customers for that, for companies who are then supplying or subcontracting out to these companies, in the future, those larger companies are going to be asking for your human rights policy, for your slavery policies, for what are you doing in relation to decarbonisation. Um, and depending on what the industry is, how are you affecting that? And you know, I could strongly suggest that if companies don't have those policies, that they seriously start to look at putting them in place because as it moves forward, it's going to become a mandatory part of doing business. Yeah, one of the things we discussed in Adelaide was the fact that still so many businesses think this is not going to affect them and it's time for you and me to say it is coming. As you say, in Europe, it's a major topic of conversation. What are your social policies and what are your your environmental policies? And I mean, I think everybody focuses on, particularly in Australia, on the environmental side with coal and all that sort of stuff. Um, Westpac has signed up to the Net Zero Banking Alliance um, and we've released our own sector targets and that that we need to be able to meet and demonstrate that we're meeting um but you know and and as i said environmental in australia around thermal coal and all that sort of stuff is very much to the fore but i think it's vitally important that people recognize it's not just the environmental it is the social side of it that becomes probably just as important as we move forward so and they must have policies yeah i i I got a phone call a little while ago from a uh stainless steel fabricator who said that they had received uh, a contract from a major organization to supply some goods but one of the things they had to to, uh, answer was what their modern day slavery uh, policy was and uh, what modern day slavery was in their supply chain and they rang to find out (laughs) what that meant and I, i think as you and i discussed that's going to start happening more and more 
Um, basically, if you're dealing with Bangladesh or Wuhan or various places, there are some hotspots around the, around the world that are certainly a problem, but you still have to have uh, other issues in place, including making sure you're paying your staff properly. You know, that's a, another issue as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, but it's also then looking around the world at what countries and that you're dealing with. Who would have seen, you know, Russia going into Ukraine? Um, if you're look, looking at particular areas and what's happening, you know, look at what's happening with China and everything around there and all the talk and that about what's going to happen with Taiwan. If I was a company dealing around the Asian region, I'd be seriously looking at how you take worst case scenarios. In a worst case scenario, if something happened, Am I protected? Can I get my goods through? You know, and that's where a lot of the Australian government and they're talking about sovereignty. Can we produce the goods in Australia rather than overseas now? Um, so look at a worst case scenario and say, will my company survive if all of it, I can't get anything into Australia for six months? And this is a great case as to why you need to be talking to your institutional banker because mm -hmm. uh, you may decide that, no, I need to get a second source of supply. I may need to get a second source of supply from, say, Vietnam, which is looking a bit more stable than, than my supplier in China, possibly. I'm, I'm making this up. But Viet Vietnam traditionally deal in USD, which brings us back to this issue of your risk has moved from the physical supply to maybe the margin is going to get cut because you're dealing in in, in US dollars and US dollar and America's got inflation. Yeah, there's there's a lot to this, isn't there? There is a lot to it, but I mean, I don't think companies should get too scared of dealing in US dollars or foreign currencies, whether it be Euro or, or whatever. Um, I think ultimately it's recognising what those risks are at the very start when you sign the contract and then mitigating them. Um, you can lock in your uh, profit margins and that at the, at the day of signing the contracts if required. Um, and you're removing that, taking that exchange risk out of the equation. I mean, some of the other risks and that that come into us, particularly if you're dealing in the likes of Latin America, et cetera, um, and in the, was in the Middle East in around the Arab Spring, et cetera, is will the governments block the borders and allow the uh, money to come out of the country? Um, you know, we had Venezuela, et cetera, uh, many, many years ago, stop all money going, leaving, going cross-border. We had Egypt which wouldn't allow money and that out of the country for a, num for a number of months. So those, those sort of areas and, and risks and that need to be managed as well. And talking to your financial institution or bank, I mean, we can work with you to remove country risk and bank risk and, and all that out of the equation and make it as clean as possible for you to do business and lock in your things. Yes, there is a cost. Um, and people say, oh, the cost is too much. Um, but then what's the cost of doing business and still having a business in 12 months' time to two years' time as opposed to not having a business? I have the, I have the same question in my mind when I travel personally and I have to make a decision on travel insurance. Yes, it's high, but what's the risk, you know, particularly yeah. if you, you're going into America where there's no health fund care, you know. Um, you've just got to look at the cost of the risk uh, and, and balance that up. And I, and At I, least make it make an educated call on what it is, yeah, and yeah, you know, where it sits. So, yeah, and I think it's been a great message from you today about think about the your financial institution and your finances as a way in which you can identify the risk rather yep. than, rather than just the, uh, the, the 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 operational risk that you see every 
every day. Although, to be honest, we didn't see the operational risk until COVID, <laughs> COVID hit. Um, all right, let's let's talk about the elephant in the room. You mentioned it briefly a, a bit earlier. When are we going to go to digital money? <laughs> I, don't think we, called, I don't think we're going to go to digital Bitcoin. Sometimes called all <laughs> oh, sorts of stuff. Ooh, I don't think that's. I don't think that's going <laughs> to eventuate. I don't think we're going to get there in many years. I think. Uh, yeah, the other the other elephant is you know everybody talks about digitising trade on a global basis and getting documentation out of it and all that sort of stuff. That's not going to happen in the short term either. Um, I mean, I think there's been you know recently there's been a number of the companies in that fall over. Trade Lens was the most recent one um, that disbanded and not doing any business. Uh, you know, we went through many years in the 1990s bolero was going to be the savior of everybody from documentation to making things flow smoother then we went through the blockchain you know and all that sort of dissipated and that to some degree um and there's a lot of tech companies are out there trying to make it work and a lot of the banks tried to make it work but have pulled back um so it just it's nothing i'm surprised no, something like blockchain hasn't worked I'm, i must say there's conceptually, no, it's a good idea. Yeah, but there's no international framework, underlying legal framework, for allowing it to work. I mean, if we look back, why do letters of credit work? Letters of credit work because there is a set of rules and regulations that every bank in the world signs up to with the with the International Chamber of Commerce. We follow those explicitly, and they're and they're um, recognised in most courts in the world that they're the rules and guidelines by which letters of credit work. Unless you had a Shenzhen-style arrangement for free movement of goods cross-border that was in Europe, you can't have the free movement of goods cross-border around the world. I mean, until the US and China, Japan and Europe and UK and Indonesia and Philippines, everybody all get in the one room in India and agree to have one set of rules and regulations and laws covering all of this, then it can't happen. You may get the odd... Um, the odd leg in there of, say, Australia to the UK or something along those lines built into trade agreements, et cetera, but you're not going to get a global capability of it being able to do because there just simply isn't any international rules and regulations. Um, as I said, we saw trade lens fall over in the last couple of weeks and they'd bought Bolero or had Bolero sitting in the background in relation to shipping documents that Maersk and, and that were trying to do. But... You've also then got very competitive companies sitting in there as well that don't necessarily want to have um, one platform or one area and one capability across the board because it removes some of their competitiveness. Um, then the other aspect you've got behind it is a lot of the governments around the world, you know, look what China did. We're trying to block goods going to or coming out of the country, um, you know, particularly some Australian goods, um, without if they'd have had a international framework that allow those goods to move in, they wouldn't have been able to do that. So there is all those aspects in that to come to it as well. But I think the um, underlying uh, thing behind it is without an, an, uh, a set of international rules and regulations, whether that comes from the ICC as it does with international with uh, letters of credit and other uh, international things like collections, etc., or whether it becomes a global law, it's not really going to be function until that happens, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Louise McGrath, who heads our uh, our trade section at AI Group, we've got a large trade doc 
operation here where we help businesses with trade docs and, and all sorts of things. She heads around the, the world to these meetings where they try and come up with frameworks uh, and not wanting to put words in her mouth. My understanding is that it's moved like minusculely over the last 10 years. It's just not, it's just not moving forward into the digital age. There's too many complex issues. Maybe we'll get it right and get it to talk about it. One of the interesting things that they came out when it was overseas was there was a change from talk of digitization to digitalization. Uh, we've had this on this podcast, yeah. Yeah. So digitization, you know, what we've been talking about and trying to make everything over the things to digitalization is more focusing internal and how you can use all the different tools and that internally to make things a lot quicker. Um, so from a lot of the banks are looking at different tools and that to do that and maybe between themselves and their clients, but not so much what's happening on a global field. If that makes, you know, that sort of bringing that together. So difference between digitization and digitalization. It's, uh, it's a complex issue. There's lots of complex things that you get involved in. Um, uh, what's going to happen in, in 2023? What do you think are going to be the big risks that your team will be looking at? We've got a fuel crisis or an energy crisis. We've got the transition happening, inflation and price, um, possibly COVID. Who knows? I mean, uh, natural disasters, God knows what's going to happen. How's your crystal ball look working? <laughs> well, I think, yeah. I'd love to. I'd love to have a crystal ball to know what's going to happen in the future. But you know, as I said, from my perspective, we have to plan and speak to companies about almost worst case scenarios. And if this happens, how are you going to be? Come down to disasters. Um, if there's floods and you've got a manufacturing entity out in Lismore or something like that that gets flooded again, what do you do? Um, you know, Westpac has a very good disaster. Um, structure and that that's in place and I would encourage all companies caught in those things to contact the, the bank at the earliest possibility and we work through things to be able to put things in place for that. If you're talking on an international basis then you know there's lots of talk around what's going to happen with China and Taiwan and all that sort of thing. Again with many companies I'd be taking all right what's the worst case scenario if this happens are you protected? If you're not, how do you protect yourself to ensure that you're not going to go under or you're not going to have key parts of your um, supply chain not able to be delivered? Um, and looking forward to your point earlier, diversifying, moving around to various other areas or ensuring that um, the cash flows and the risks and that are there. I think one of the other aspects in that, you know, again, we touched on it earlier, was uh, the logistics and the shipping times. Um, you know, what would be the impact to you if all of a sudden your goods were three months late? If your parts were three months late in being delivered, how are you going to cope with that? And that's where a lot of companies have decided to build up their inventory and warehousing and all that sort of thing in order to cater for that. But that then impacts their uh, facility sizes, how long they've got goods and that in, in well, warehouses. It changes all of your ratios, doesn't it? All of Correct. your financial ratios just changes yeah. all of them. And that's just about sitting down and I think banks – um, and at Westpac, we understand that, and now we, you know, we're quite willing and, and happy to sit down with companies at the very at the forefront and work through it all, and sort of say, this is what this is what your trade cycle. And I work on trade cycles. Remember, you can have the most profitable company in the world, but if you've got no cash flow, you've got no company. So I work through trade cycles and work through cash flow. I'm essentially a cash flow lender, so I work through the cash flow through the trade cycle. And your, your, your cash flow ratios are important, but as I say, when you change your inventory, when you change your trading terms, when you change all sorts of stuff, 
cash up front, my goodness, that's going to change your cash cycles. Uh, I've said for many years to to many businesses that I've had the pleasure to work with, but your managers will look to business growth and efficiency. Your accountants will look towards uh, maximizing uh, your uh, your, your assets and minimizing your tax, but your banker is the one that will help you understand your lifeblood, which is your, your, your cash. They'll help you with, with, with blood when you need it <laughs> uh, and they'll help you manage it. Uh, it's been good to get your perspective. Thank you so much. Um, I hope that you have a very merry banker's Christmas <laughs> and that next year is, is, is really good for you. Uh, Ian, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. No worries. Thanks, James, and uh, to all your listeners, have a Merry Christmas, and I look forward to being able to help you guys in 2023 and beyond. And beyond, indeed. Thank you so much. Hey, before you go, did you know that AI Group has a new monthly newsletter called Economic Intelligence? It's a monthly magazine full of insights and analysis of the key economic issues of the month. So if your supply chain management and planning could be improved by up-to-date and insightful economic views, Get economic insights directly to your inbox each month. To find out how, contact AI Group's economic team at economics at aigroup.com.au. That's economics at aigroup.com.au. And I'll talk to you in 2023.